Welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. It's your host, Sophia, recording this four days after Thanksgiving. And I'm very happy to say that I'm grateful for today's discussion. It was truly an honor to talk to today's guests, and it's an honor to introduce her. It's Dr. Sarah Pike, a distinguished author and professor of comparative religion whose groundbreaking work in paganism, environmentalism, and ritual studies offers unique insights into how our spiritual beliefs shape our interaction with the world. She is also the author of Earthly Bodies, Magical Selves, Contemporary Pagans in the Search for Community, New Age, and Neo-Pagan Religions in America, which was named uh, Choice Outstanding Academic Title, and also the book we will be discussing today, For the Wild. She has written numerous articles, book chapters, and encyclopedia articles on contemporary paganism, the New Age movement, the Burning Man Festival, new religions in the media, environmentalism, and youth culture. She has also given invited lectures at the University of Tennessee, the University of Kansas, Princeton University, Indiana University, York University, University of Nevada, University of Montana, Northern Arizona University, and the University of Oslo, among others and has presented papers and keynote addresses at conferences around the United States, as well as in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Morelia, Mexico, Amsterdam, Heidelberg, and Lisbon. Dr. Pike has been actively involved in national and international professional organizations. She served on the board of directors of the American Academy of Religion, the world's largest association of religious studies scholars, from 2006 to 2011, and was chair of the AAR's Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion from 2007 to 2011. She currently serves on the board of directors of the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture. So, once again, I am very grateful for our discussion, and I hope you are too. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is the Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for joining me, uh, first of all. Um, I have actually, I've been interested in the role of like ritual in different faith traditions and different spiritual traditions for, for a while. So this will be really interesting, eye-opening conversation for me. So, Great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So I thought to start out with, we could just talk about what inspired you to explore the role of ritual in radical eco-activism in your book, For the Wild. Well, when I started out, I really wasn't looking for a ritual. <laughs> I mean, I had studied ritual in a lot of other contexts because it's been an interest of mine for quite a while. Um, but I really felt compelled, really, rather than inspired, um, to, to look more into what radical activists were doing because I kept reading these news stories. This would have been in the early 2000s. Um, about eco-terrorists and I and you know they hadn't killed anyone but they were being classified with other domestic terrorists that that had killed many people I mean this was early 2000s so right after September 11th um, the attack uh, on New York and the World Trade Center so uh, I thought this kind of demonization of activists and classifying them in that way was um, a little strange and I was really curious as to why these people were so committed to um, animals or forests that they were risking prison sentences, fairly substantial prison sentences. And so as a scholar of religion, I guess one of my tasks is to make things that seem strange look more familiar or understandable. And so that's why I was interested in looking at, at radical activists. And then the whole thing about ritual really came out as I was studying them and, and was really aware of how ritualized many of the protests were. I mean, people don't tend to think of protest as rituals um, in the kind of classic sense of a ritual as some repetitious thing that you do, but but I don't think of it um, quite like that. So that was that was kind of one of the, the reasons that to try to get behind that label of eco-terrorists to see 
you know, what are, you know, take these people seriously and their concerns seriously and kind of see what, what motivated them. Yeah. So kind of just going off that, um, I guess for the listeners, well, I wanted to divide this kind of conversation into talking about what you were just saying about why people, what makes people so uh, driven towards these causes and what kind of ignites that spark and then talk about what role ritual plays in that and then how people can apply this to their own lives uh, because we, I suppose we all have rituals, whether we like it or not. And yeah. <laughs> if we manufacture rituals, that's a very powerful skill to have. So um, so yeah, so one, one thing that really fascinated me about your work was this idea of biosocial becoming. Uh, so I was wondering if you could first define this for the audience um, and then discuss how this contributes to uh, radical activism. Yeah, can you, of course. Can you create this in your own life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, in my book, I really approach young activists kind of transformation into activists. I mean, people aren't like born to be, act, you know, they aren't born as activists, right? Something happens in their lives that moves them in that direction. Um, and so I really, I came across this term biosocial becoming in the in a book, uh, an article by two anthropologists, uh, Tim Ingold and Gisley Palson. And what they mean by biosocial becoming is that we're always becoming human beings in relationship with many other beings, human and other than human. And we're really shaped by the biotic community, the living world, um, as well as by human society. And I think that was a really important thing for me to recognize and think about. Um, another scholar that really influenced my thinking about this biosocial becoming was a scholar, Donna Haraway. And, and she's written a lot about how human nature is an interspecies relationship. And so this whole idea, again, of that I mean, the social part is both human and other than human, and the, the biological part is human and other than human, but that we can't really escape this, even though we don't realize it, that biosocial becoming is happening to us all, all the time, whether we recognize it or not. Um, so I have always been interested in childhood experience and how that shapes adult commitments. And when I was working on um, my research with contemporary pagans earlier on, I found that stories about childhood were really important for um, kind of adult, adult identity and spiritual commitment. And often those um, experiences were about being a child in nature, right? And so similar stories came up when I started talking to activists. Like when I asked why, you know, what got you committed to you know, being in a tree sit or blocking a pipeline, you know, why did you want to put your body on the line? And a lot of them went back to childhood experience. And that childhood experience was always in the company of non-human others. Is there, um, is there a yeah. point, is there like a cutoff point or is this something that as an adult, if you're looking back, you're like, oh, I wish I could kind of create this for myself as an adult. Is it still possible? Or is there a cutoff point? Absolutely. It's definitely still possible. Um, I think that, you know, most of the activists that I worked with were young. And so these they would talk about childhood and teenage years. But some of them also talked about as young adults in their 20s, that they had some of these experiences. And then they would remember that they also had had them in childhood. But not all of them did. Some of them grew up in like New York City or places where they did mm -hmm. encounter nature and they were around other species. But it wasn't as, as obvious as like being in the woods or something like that. Um, so I I think that for, for people that want to nurture this and kind of focus on it in their own lives, it's really just a shift in awareness and attention to thinking about how we are always in relationship um, with other species, you know, however that may be, whether it's just the birds you hear out your window or, you know, it's the spiders in your bathroom or whatever that is to really just kind of shift awareness to that and how you respond to those other beings and, you know, are there ways to, to honor and respect them? Um, and these can be ritualized ways, such as making offerings to them, drawing pictures of them, really simple things. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but just to remind you that you are always in relationship with these other beings that are all around us. Um, 
And I also would suggest, I don't know, um, there's a wonderful movement you may be aware of or your listeners may be familiar with that's called ecotherapy. And it includes forest therapy. And if you Google those terms, you'll find all kinds of um, like meditations and simple exercises you can do um, to really nurture empathy and connection with the other than human living world. So um, I've been really happy to see this movement kind of gaining traction in the U.S., um, because it really does help with that shifting of awareness about the sort of interspecies world that we're always involved in and we tend to forget about. Yeah. Could you uh, briefly summarize the Jeffrey Lures case that you met, you talked about in the in the book and why yeah. why this this particular person was so driven towards ecoactivism? Yeah, Jeffrey was a really interesting case, and he was one of the first activists that I interviewed. I started my um, research for this book by writing letters to activists that were in prison because mm -hmm. it was it was hard to access them because most of them wanted to be anonymous, the ones that weren't in prison, right? Because they were often involved with illegal action. So um, mm -hmm. my way into the world began with writing letters to people that were in prison who had time to respond and were easy to find out, you know, to discover, and they'd already been charged and sentenced. So it wasn't putting them at risk. Right. Um, so Jeff Lures was one of the first um, activists that I wrote to in prison and asked him basically some interview questions, similar to like what you're asking uh, me today. And he just sent me these really amazing stories about his experiences and they were so articulate and so um, thoughtful. Um, yeah. But it started back in 2001 and he was, uh, well, it didn't start then, it started a little earlier, late uh, 1990s and around 2000. But in 2001, he was sentenced to 22 years and a little um, more than that in prison for a sabotage of three SUVs uh, in a deserted car dealership. And he'd taken care that no one would be injured. And, you know, I mean, it was an act of destruction, no doubt about it. And it was mm -hmm. arson. Um, and it was a protest against global warming. Um, but he was labeled an eco-terrorist and then pro uh, prosecutors at the time, again, this is 2001, um, the attacks on the World Trade Center had just happened. And so they had these terrorist enhancements to, to give him that 22 year sentence um, for property destruction, which um, was pretty extreme. So he, he explained to me that he wasn't acting out of anger or hatred for anyone that he was really acting out of love and compassion for the earth and this sort of, you know, against global warming. And then it all went back to this experience that he had when he had gone to a tree sit um, in Oregon. This was up in the Cascade Mountains in a forest in, in Oregon. And when he went there and he was, he was 19 or 20 at the time. And he, he really felt that he was communicating with the forest, that it understood he was there to protect, protected and that it was protecting him. So he had this, this very kind of intimate relationship with the trees and he came to know the trees and he started talking to them. And then he described this experience for me that I really think about as a kind of conversion experience to activism, where he had this um, experience with this one tree that he called happy, where he felt like his body, like kind of the boundary between him and the tree melted away and he could feel what the tree felt and that it felt grief for all the trees that were getting cut down around it, um, that he felt its pain and that he felt the pain of the earth as it was getting paved over and, and um, clear cutting uh, logging in the forest was happening. Mm -hmm. And this experience really changed his life. And then it set him on this road to, to doing this action because he felt like he, he had no choice, that he was responsible to, to do something, to act in some way um, that would, um, you know, help help the earth and help the forest. And so, yeah, so he ended up in prison with this 22-year sentence and he did, um, he had a, a number of appeals and then he was resentenced to 10 years and released in, in 2009. So he didn't, still spent, you know, eight years in prison as a young person and um, interesting, he went on to earn a degree from the University of Oregon, and he's now um, practicing as a landscape architect. So kind of an interesting um, story. Did, is this, is it usually with um, like radical activists, is it usually an experience like that? Or is it ever the case that there's like a gradual buildup to? 
Yeah, I think it's there are so there are many, many different kinds of stories. I mean, Jeff's was one of the most distinct kind of cases where he had what I would say was a conversion experience like that. And I mean, of course, you know, when you gather these stories through interviews, people are remembering the past and they're telling the story of the past in a particular way. You know, yeah. if we think about the narratives we tell about the past, memory is not an instant replay. You know, memory is not like you film something and you're telling exactly what had happened, what happened. I mean, the ways that our brain works, we put things together because of the present context. And so yeah. I, th I think that's that part is um, really important to remember um, in in these stories. So so for him, this, you know, he identified that moment as really important. For some other activists, it was more gradual. It was a mm -hmm. little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, you know, they didn't necessarily have such a distinct experience, but it was pretty typical that, that a lot of them could pinpoint a moment where they decided to act. They might've mm -hmm. already been committed. They might've been writing letters to, to the representatives, but when they decided to do an illegal action, there was usually a moment when they were just like fed up that yeah. they didn't have a choice. Like they had to, to do something more, serious yeah and actually that um that what you're telling me about his experience with the tree actually reminds me of the another question that um i wanted to ask you about your book and this idea uh, of concepts like the like nature or the wild and why why those are problematic um so i was wondering if you could just expand on that yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think it's it's something that people are writing about more now than they used to. We kind of used to take those concepts for granted as if we knew what we were talking about. But <laughs> of course, like like many other big concepts like that, you know, there's kind of a, a, an assumption that goes behind them that that can be problematic. So I think for for many Americans and many of us in the in the Western world, and elsewhere, um, we grew up with the idea that humans and nature are somehow separate, right? <laughs> like nature's out there and human identity is like bounded off from nature in some way, rather than the reality that humans are part of nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, so nature's like this concept that we created. And I mean, really everything is natural if we think about it, plastic, fossil fuels, you know, everything's made out of minerals and elements. So, I mean, it's it kind of loses its it's, uh, you know, strength in that sense. So we have to be careful and define, well, what do we mean by by nature when we're talking about it? And I think it's important to see that it's something we are in and with at all times, not something out there uh, away from us. So for example, I, I often point out to my students, I show them these images of, of um, uh, gut bacteria, these magnified yeah. images of gut bacteria that are in us, of course. And I say, you know, I make them guess what they are. And then we talk about the fact that, I mean, we have all these microorganisms in us and, and on our, you know, in our hair and on our skin. And we don't think about the fact that our bodies are not these bounded beings that are separate from all other species. We're mm -hmm. always interacting with these other species. So nature is, is, is all mm -hmm. on us and around us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think that the, the idea of nature, um, it's important to define what, what we mean by that. Right. Where does where does that idea come from that we're separate from nature? Is that is that like a can that be pinpointed to something specific or is it just something that's kind of developed? Yeah, a lot of scholars have written about this. I mean, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. I mean, many people will put the blame on um, the Enlightenment uh, philosophers and the idea that kind of you know mind and matter are different. You know mm -hmm. that like the body is part of nature, but you should rise above your body and use your rational mind to, to interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And then also some scholars have identified um, the monotheistic religions, especially Christianity, which has been so important and influential in the United States as, mm -hmm. as pushing that separation of kind of spirit and body. So still the human body is part of nature, but the spirit or soul is seen as something that's superior. above, yeah, like above nature and a part of nature. Those are just two examples. Um, it's a it's a really com complex history uh, in terms of our understanding. I mean, one way to think about it is that many cultures, especially indigenous cultures, there's not a separate word for nature, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that this is very particular to certain cultural history. 
that mm -hmm. is, you know, in the Western world and, and not global um, mm -hmm. and not something that we should take for granted, but something that we should always yeah. be asking questions about. Is that part of the reason why a lot of activists might self-identify as pagan because of that, uh, because there's not that separation? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's one of the reasons. I mean, I think a lot of, of activists are attracted um, to paganism because they appreciate the view among most pagans, pretty much all the pagans that I've ever met, that the earth is something sacred, right? And that we're not separated from it, that we're interconnected. There's, there's a strong sense of interconnectedness with other beings and that yeah. pre-Christian religion should be valued, right? That the cycle of the seasons should be honored in some way, that mm -hmm. our actions can change our consciousness and, and change the world around us. So I think that, yeah, paganism is attractive to a lot of activists for many reasons. I mean, certainly by no means are all activists pagan. So right. I wanna make sure that that is clear. Yeah. Um, I think that I would say that many environmental activists are kind of pagan with a small p, right? <laughs> they see the earth as sacred. Um, they often, you know, recognize the cycle of the seasons, like the solstices and the equinoxes, and those, mm -hmm. you know, those are important to them. Um, but not all of them would identify as kind of pagan with a large p as a religious identity. Some yeah. would, some would, but but not all of them would. And I think they've kind of taken little pieces of of contemporary pagan um, beliefs like you know really focusing on the solstices and equinoxes or yeah this idea that that spirit or energy is is imminent in the world around us rather than transcendent and out of the world so I think they borrowed many things from paganism and and certainly a lot of pagans have been involved with um, environmental activism and radical activism and I think the other reason that activists I mean we, we kind of covered this but just to clarify um are in, tend to embrace paganism or at least feel sympath, sympathy with it is that it's kind of an oppositional response to Christianity, right? So if they, yeah. they many of them see Christianity as the problem or monotheistic religions in general, including Christianity, mm -hmm. Judaism, and um, Islam as the problem because of this division between nature and, and um, you know, soul or spirit or mind and body. And so paganism becomes part of an oppositional identity. It, it was the other, you know, Christianity's other, so we should embrace it. Mm -hmm. So I think that is sometimes another reason um, why they're really attracted uh, to contemporary paganism. Yeah. I wanna move on to talking about ritual now. Um, so to, to begin with, I was wondering if you could just kind of define what ritual even means and what counts as a ritual maybe giving some examples of um, the way that everyday people use it in their lives and the way eco-activists use it in their own lives. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, for scholars, I think I mentioned this a little bit before, but but not, I didn't go into any detail. I think for scholars, ritual has, or scholars of ritual, it has a much broader definition. I think kind of for many everyday people, it's like a repetitive activity or it's something you go to temple or or to church or to meditation group and you do it. It's it's not uh, it isn't an everyday thing and it's not something that you do to interact with other uh, species. Um, so I really saw ritual in two ways when after kind of after I'd done my research. As I said, I wasn't really looking for ritual, but then I found it um, as my research went forward um, over some years. So there are really two kinds of rituals that I talk about in the book, and one is a kind of rite of passage or conversion experience. So if we think about the literature on a rite of passage and we could think about, um, you know, marriage is a good example or a death rite, it usually carries someone from one stage of life to another stage of life. Mm -hmm. And that, and if that's a rite of passage, then Jeff Luer's case and many of the other activists who had this experience that really moved them from one stage of life to another stage of life, becoming an activist. Um, it's very similar. So, so there's the rite of passage. So I would kind of bracket that and set that aside. And then there's more what I think of as ritualized actions or protest as a ritual. And that's really defining ritual as a value-laden practice or an action that's done with intention and focus. And so if we think about, that's a very broad definition of ritual, but that covers most rituals. 
It's that that a certain kind of intention or focus has to be there. And then there's the, you know, the values that are put on the practices that they have some importance, right? The, um, the, the formula would be like intention plus practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus practice plus values, right? That there's something, in, and that could go with the intention. There's something important about this, right? Yeah. You know, I'm making an offering to these plants, you know, not just, I mean, what's my intention? My intention is that I value and respect and honor these plants. And so that's why I'm giving them this tobacco or or whatever it might be. Um, so yes, so intention plus practice and with the kind of values in there that there's something a little deeper um, there. I mean, it, you know, people do sometimes talk about, oh, empty rituals. Just if you go about habitually doing something, that isn't really the kind of ritual that I'm talking about. I'm really talking about intentional rituals that people are are doing. And they might be repetitious. They might be something that you do over and over again, but you're putting the meaning into them. Um, so with the protest ritual protests, the way I think about it, so if you if you're going like these protests that I wrote about, I mean, often you're chanting, you're you're drumming, you're doing, you know, you're doing these practices and you're focusing on what you want to accomplish. You're focusing on what you want to change in the world and you're focusing on your relationships with other species. That's, you know, that's the main intention. It's about we're here to save this forest. And as we're chanting together and as we're locking arms together around these trees, you know, mm -hmm. it's with this intention to save this forest. So I think of these as ritualized activities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what happens in ritual is, is two things people express the values that are important to them. And at the same time, they're creating those values in the experience of the ritual. Um, so you might go, let's say you get dragged along to a protest by a friend of yours and you you haven't really thought, you're, you're, you're kind of an environmentalist, but you've never been to a protest before. You get dragged along and you get caught up in the experience. And all of a sudden these become your values too, by doing them, you're kind of, you know, confirming them in your own mind. Of course, it can work the other way. You, I mean, it isn't always a positive outcome. You might go to a ritual and I certainly had some interviews. Um, it wasn't typical, but it did happen that people were like, oh no, I don't want this. <laughs> you know, I'm leaving, right? So, I mean, ritual isn't always a positive thing. It, it can, you can have a negative reaction that's like, no, I don't want those, those values. That's too scary or no, that's not me. And then, you know, that's it. You're gone. <laughs> mm -hmm. So are, are rituals kind of part of what you were saying about biosocial becoming in that, like, they, they kind of create the values and they're the experiences that create the values? Yeah, well? because I think, yeah, what I was saying, yeah, exactly. That the, um, it's, instead of just I mean, like I said, we're all involved with other species all the time, but we tend not to focus on it. So ritual focuses that attention. If mm -hmm. you're going to, a, I mean, I think a really good example that came after the book came out is Extinction Rebellion, which is, you know, a um, environmental protest movement that really spread around 2019 and then kind of, it's still going on, but it, 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 it calmed down during COVID. But what you know, some of the things they did, for example, like they would have these um, funerals for extinct species where they would become, they would dress up as the animals that had gone extinct and they would lie down in coffins or lie down in a road. And so they're becoming that animal. They're bringing the value of that animal that went extinct into a public space, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's to me a very ritualized, I mean, it's a funeral, there's a funeral procession <laughs> with these extinct animals and you as a human are identifying with these other animals and you're putting your body on the line for them in a sense, and you're yeah. bringing attention to them in this ritualized activity. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think is one really good example in those, the, the, some of the um, extinction rebellion protests that we've seen where there's a, a clear expression of the value of these other species in a public space, if yeah. that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it it reminds me of um, like Confucius and the the whole idea of like the ritual space and stepping into the ritual space even if you're not really if you're not really feeling it, you know. Um, exactly. And, yeah, and and even yeah. a lot of ideas 
that might be made popular through some self-help books. Uh, there's this idea that you build a habit. I don't know if, if habit might be, maybe that's too, maybe that's not something you want to like connect to a ritual necessarily, but this idea that you build habits in order to kind of cast a vote for the type of person or the type of values you want to have. Oh, I love that. Casting a vote. No, I think that's right. And habits don't have to be negative and they don't, you know, I mean, habit can very much express, express a value laden identity. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even though I said intention is important, sometimes the intention is just there at the beginning and then you start doing it automatically and it can still be very important and meaningful um, at the same time. But I like that you brought up the ritual space and the kind of Confucius and importance of, of ritual space, because I think with the with the protests, that is really important. Like, let's, again, take Extinction Rebellion as a more recent example um, than some of the ones that I have in my book. But you've created a space in a in the middle of New York City or in the middle of London. You're in front of like, I'll just take an example. You're in front of Wall Street. You're in New York City. You're in front of Wall Street. You've you've like you've laid down the middle of the street right with your friends your or your you know your colleagues uh, your other protesters there's yes. probably 15 or 20 of you there might be 100 and you've created a sacred space by saying there's something of value here that we need to pay attention to and that's you know the destruction that we're having and this protest in wall street was against fossil fuels and the funding of of fossil fuels mm -hmm. And so I think there you really do have a sense of sacred space, of ritual space. Um, and I find that really interesting function of a lot of protests is that they, there is a sense that's created of this. And then when people come into it, they can feel something. They might be angry or they might be sympathetic, um, but they can feel that there's something that's out of the ordinary happening there. Yeah. Do, do any cultural or spiritual ideas influence this? Maybe, maybe not even just like positively influenced, but there maybe there's certain cultural or spiritual ideas that people are actively trying to repel is there is there any of this or is it a lot more about um just so an individual experience yeah i mean i do think that with the environmental activists communities that i've focused on they're very anti-capitalist um mm -hmm. so i think that's really important that you know there's a history to that um, some of it comes from anarchism and communism. I mean, if you kind of, not that they would be all card-carrying communists or anarchists, but there is a big influence there that's that's really a critique of capitalism. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that is definitely part of the cultural history um, of activism. And then I think um, the idea that, you know, let's say trees are sacred, for example. So, so of course, in many cultures, there's ideas about trees being sacred. So I think, you know, they may have read something about that, you know, maybe it was in Buddhism, or maybe it was about paganism, where trees are sacred. And then they're like, oh, well, if these religions think trees are sacred, and my experience with trees also says that they're sacred, then maybe I should do something about it. You know, maybe I should, you know, be climbing up into a tree and keeping the loggers from coming, or maybe I should be blocking this um, oil pipeline that's gonna be built, built through this forest. Yeah, so I think there are some different ways in which you could identify certain cultural or, or spiritual beliefs that might influence their practices. Does that make sense? Yeah. What are the, um, are there, are there specific, are there any really strong challenges in your opinion from the other side, like people who, might disagree that capitalism is the problem or that communism is part of the solution or any of any ideological kind of challenges to this idea? Well, I definitely, I, I wanna be clear that most activists would not say communism is part of the solution anymore. I mean, I think there's a history there with, yeah. um, and it's it tends to be anarchism tends to be much more common, which mm -hmm. would be against any kind of state or ruling body. Um, which in communism, of course, you do have a state. <laughs> it is supposed to, you know, fall away at some point. But as we know, if we take the experiences that we've, or the histories that we've seen, um, the, the state is still present. So activists would be very anti-state, anti-government in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yes, and even activists themselves, not all of them are, some are more radically anti-capitalist than others. 
some of them would say, well, you know, we could have a green capitalism. Um, so there's there's a range, but I think most of them are going to be on the anti-capitalist side. I think the main critiques that come up both within these movements and from without is um, that any kind of spirituality or ritual can be seen as not political enough. And that's something that I've seen quite a bit. Oh, that's just superstition. So even though I've talked a lot and focused on ritual and spirituality, there is some suspicion of that in these movements, that it's not serious enough. It's triv It trivializes their movement because their movement's political, right? Um, so many activists do have that spiritual side, but in some contexts, at some protests, it might be downplayed. Um, so I think that's a, that's a challenge, um, both within the movement and outside the movement. I mean, there's a very um, aggressive critique mostly coming from conservative um, Christians, conservative evangelical Christians, that um, uh, environmentalism is a like satanic worship because it's, you know, it's, it's making the earth into something sacred and that nature worship is anti-God. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that critique is also coming um, from outside the movement, um, yes. but is something that is a challenge to, to deal with because and I think that is sometimes influences the focus more on, well, we should be just focusing on politics. Let's not call ourselves pagan because <laughs> it might be seen as Satanism or something else that is yeah. not what we're doing. So so that's a kind of complicated um, issue, I think. But it is one of the challenges to associate spirituality and ritual with these movements. Um, it's It's one of the challenges that comes up. And are there are there ever any times when in these movements, particular rituals might be hindering them or maybe they need to like update their rituals and not be so attached to them. Is that ever the case? I can't really think of any examples. I think because in my research, you know, that activists wouldn't even call what they're doing rituals necessarily with the protests. I mean, I see them as creating a ritual space and, and doing ritualized actions, but they wouldn't call them that. Um, I think that individual activists do rituals with trees and plants. That could be tree hugging. That could be making an offering. Um, that could be um, doing healing rites for a tree that's been injured by um, logging or, or something else. Um, that could be making uh, an offering before you harvest a plant to eat. I mean, so there, these would be more, more individualistic, I think, um, if that answers your question. Yeah. And how do, I guess, like with with radical eco-activists who I guess are, they're putting a lot on the line uh, whenever they engage in kind of these really extreme acts of protest, what kind of rituals do they maybe uh, use to cultivate that kind of resilience in order to go into that situation where they are putting so much on the line? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think it's a it's a it's a question that activist communities are really actively dealing with. Um, and it's something that probably, you know, in the early kind of environmental actions in the US, like in the 1970s with the anti-nuclear movement and some of the other movements, there wasn't a lot of attention to your own kind of the effects on you as a person. But lots of activists today will will really talk about burnout. And yeah, the emotional cost and you know the risks of of these actions, especially the illegal ones, where they where they are risking going. You know, they're you know if you're lying if you're blocking a road, you may get yeah. hauled away for a night or something. But if you're doing a sabotage, um, like for instance, for uh, freeing animal mink from a mink farm or something, which was was one of the activists that I interviewed was something that he had done. He was serving a prison sentence for that. I mean, these are really risky and they're going to take you away from your family and friends and you're going to be in prison and you're not going to be able to eat your vegetarian diet or your vegan diet. And it's going to be really challenging. And there have been some suicides um, in activist communities, uh, one in particular, I mean, someone who knew he was going to go to prison. Uh, so I think there is a there is a lot of burnout and stress that is being addressed. And so how do you how do you create a more resilient community? So they they are coming up with, I think, sometimes the incorporation of mindfulness uh, practice and meditation um, has has been used not by everyone, but it's something that I've seen at, at gatherings. Um, the other thing I've seen uh, that's, I think, been really important in the last 
well, at least 10 years, is really attention to um, gender dynamics um, and to, you know, the uh, activist community sometimes having sexism or transphobia, just like the broader culture. And these are also things that can cause stress. So within the activist community, finding ways to address these kinds what of issues. That they, they address these and what are, are there any specific um, like examples of that? Yeah, like I'll give the example of, I was at one gathering where they did a fishbowl where they it was about um, white privilege and mm -hmm. the activists of color that were in that particular. So this was a gathering that was, I guess it was maybe a four day long gathering. And um, they had this this workshop and it was, there were a lot of people there. There were maybe 30 people there. I mean, not a lot, a lot, but it was a good, good sized group. And so the, um, the people of color were on the inside of, so they divided up the people of color, those who identified mm -hmm. as that and the people that identified as white. And they had to go off and the white people had to talk about their white privilege and the people of color talked among themselves about the experiences of racism that they'd had. And then we came back together in the fishbowl where um, the people of color start out in the middle and the white people were on the outside and they talked about their experiences and the white, you know, the, those of us on the outside, I identify as, as white. Um, we listened and it was about listening. And then we switched and we talked about our white privilege and, and they listened. So, I mean, to me, that's a very, you know, structured, ritualized, structured way of identifying some of these issues and trying to talk through them and listen. Um, so that's just one example, but there were there were a lot of different kinds of, of workshops that dealt with issues that are in the broader culture. And of course, just because activists see themselves as alternative communities, they yeah. still bring everything with them. I mean, we all do. We bring our upbringing, we bring our socialization and everything in the broader culture with us, even when we're trying to create an alternative away from that culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I suppose that that ritual you're describing, it would also foster a sense of like community and belonging that probably also contributes to the kind of resilience that might be needed. Yeah, I think it can have different outcomes. I think for the people of color that were in the middle, it did create a sense of solidarity for them. Um, there was also some anger that came out of it. So, I mean, it can have like multiple effects. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think that for those of us who identified as white and were on the outside listening, there was a really, I mean, it really changed us to sit mm -hmm. and to, to both recognize, oh yeah, these are things that I never thought about that I take for granted that I get to do because I'm white and no one ever looks twice. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, so I think there can be many different outcomes. Definitely a feeling of solidarity can be um, one of the outcomes to these kinds of ritualized activities. Mm -hmm. And can you discuss any transformations that you might've noticed in people who engage in rituals like this or or rituals that are just about feeling a connection to nature maybe yeah i mean i'll give one example from a um one of the people that i met and her name activists have forest names often that they take um for anonymity and also because it identifies something important about this so one of these activists that i talked to at length was called nettle after the nettle plant which is yeah both incredibly powerful medicinally, but also very prickly, you know, and that she identified with that plant. And she told me about an experience that she'd had as, as a young person. I think, she, I can't remember now, I think she was somewhere between 17 and 23, somewhere in that age range, late teen, early twenties. Yeah. And she was really searching. She didn't feel a sense of belonging anywhere. Um, her gender identity was pretty fluid. And she, um, she did identify as she, her at the time. Um, she was traveling around to different things and she ended up at this um, tree sit in Scotland. Um, she was uh, American, but she ended up in Scotland at this tree sit. And it was, um, there was a very strong feminist component to it and a very strong pagan identity at this particular tree sit. It was a, a, in, um, I can't remember where in Scotland, but it was an anti, I think it was an anti-roads. So they were blocked. They had a, they had a camp that was blocking a road that were, they were trying to carve through some, some forest. And mm -hmm. she really had that experience of solidarity there. It's like, oh, 
I'm a feminist. Oh, I'm a pagan. Kind of realizing those things in that community that she hadn't really vocalized before. Um, so I think, you know, being involved with the protest with people that like-minded people, she found that sense of belonging there and really started to understand her own experience with a kind of feminist critique um, and a, a, a pagan critique of her own um, background. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's a that's a pretty good example of how that can happen. I mean, mm. it can be different for different individuals, but that was her story. Yeah. And how, I guess, moving on to like how this can be applied to people who maybe aren't like radical eco activists or uh, aren't really involved in any activism, like how, how can people like that apply the, the power of rituals to build resilience and to create change and to feel a sense of like community? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because most of us aren't going to go and put our bodies on the line. It's just, you know, <laughs> we have kids or we have <laughs> we have jobs that we can't leave. I mean, we have all kinds of reasons. Um, I mean, for me, when I went to as a I was a participant observer doing an ethnographic project. So I went to the protest, but I was always in the safe zone, like the green zone. I could have been arrested, but it was unlikely. Um, so I was holding a sign or banging a drum or doing something that didn't involve an actual illegal um, action, um, but I was there to support. Um, so I think, you know, so for me, it's, you know, what could I take from my research into my own life? And I think, you know, really it's it's what I've said about, about ritual um, earlier is that, is using simple rituals to bring attention to the things around us that we're always in relationship with, but tend to take for granted um, and how we can really come to appreciate and, and um, have compassion for these other beings if we focus. So I'll just give you an example um, that of something that I've, I've taken up and that I was working on a restoration project with an indigenous teacher, a land restoration project. And one of the things she taught us was to offer something before we harvested seeds, we were harvesting poppy seeds, to offer something of ourselves. It could be, you know, a couple of strands of hair or, a you know pinch of tobacco or something yeah like whatever that would be and then you know to say thank you and is it okay to take your seeds and then to harvest the seeds and so i've started taking it up when i if i go foraging for some berries in the forest or some greens or and you could do this whether you live in the city or not you know there's plenty of edible things around you just an example um to make some kind of offering usually just some hairs but so I'll put the hair on the ground and I'll just think about the fact that I'm really grateful for what this other species is, you know, what this being, this plant being is, is, yeah. is giving me. Um, so it can be as simple as, as something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, in terms of resilience, I think that what those kinds of simple rituals do is just remind us that we're always in relationship with the world around us, that we aren't, we aren't separate and that we aren't alone. And I think, for those of us that are concerned about um, climate change or environmental change, um, it can be really scary. And it's, it, I think it it's helpful and comforting to recognize that we're in it together with all of these other beings around us and that we aren't separate as much as we often go through our day thinking that we are. Um, so that's why, I mean, I think that there, yeah, again, these kinds of simple rit rituals that create relationships of honor and respect with other species, whatever they are, it might just be feeding birds out your, your window, but doing it with a certain kind of intention, right? Mm -hmm. If you're yeah. putting the bird seed out, what's the intention there is to, is to build a relationship. You're valuing the bird um, for its beauty, for its song, um, for its presence in the world, right? So, and then it's giving that to you, it's giving its presence. So it's a reciprocal kind of relationship that you're nurturing. Yeah. with these kinds of simple ritualized activities. Yeah, and I suppose that goes back to what we were talking about before about how this idea that there's a divide between people and nature that's prevent that inhibits the ability to form those relationships. Yes. And then I, yeah, and then also that kind of made me think about um the there people who might have like a gratitude journal or something like that and how oh i love that idea yeah this idea of like doing something intentionally even if it 
even if you think it's silly or if it makes you cringe a little bit, sometimes it can be, it can be really powerful and it can actually, even, even if you know that you're, you're doing it and you're doing it on purpose and deliberately, it still has these effects. Yeah, that's a really, really good point about some of these things can seem embarrassing. <laughs> it's like, oh, like I often, I live in the redwood, in the redwood forest. And often when I'm walking, there's a lot of tree ghosts in the, it's mostly new, you know, younger redwoods, like a hundred years or less, but there's a lot of stumps of these ancient ones. And I will often just touch them as I'm going through and just kind of have an exchange with them. And I think, God, what do people, you know, what do they think I'm doing? <laughs> but I, I agree. I mean, those simple things are keeping a gratitude journal. They, they shift something in us and, and it's, it's really, I think they're really important. And it's so to take that risk, even if you feel awkward, do it anyway. Mm, yeah. Is there, I guess, does it, is there um, a certain like time commitment that you think people necessarily would need to, that you need on a daily basis or weekly basis to create that change or like how, how small can a ritual get to still have that effect? Yeah, I think it can be really small. And I think if you, if you start to feel like it's a big commitment, it's going to be harder to do. So even mm -hmm. something like um, recognizing the equinoxes, the solstices, the phases of the moon, even if it's mm -hmm. a simple thing like making a special meal on that day, it might be just mm -hmm. enhancing something you're already doing. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, making offerings and, and there's really simple practices that people do already. Like, you know, it's a, the Christian practice of saying grace at a meal. I mean, you can change that into a practice of gratitude to the plants or animals that you're eating. And that's takes... 10 seconds, right? Or it could take two minutes if you wanted to make it longer. Um, but they're, I think, really simple expressions of gratitude. Um, and again, it's about the intention and the focus that can help shift your own awareness. It doesn't have to take long. And it can mm -hmm. be something that, yeah, takes just a few minutes out of your day, or maybe it's once a week, or maybe yeah. it's a it's a journal activity um, that takes you 15 minutes each evening. I mean, it's, it definitely doesn't have to be a big commitment to create mm -hmm. these kinds of meaningful rituals in your life. Yeah. And is there, is there anywhere specific people can go maybe online or a particular book if they are looking for ideas on different kinds of rituals to maybe incorporate into their lives? Yeah, that's a good question. There are a lot of books out there. I mean, I, I tend to think, well, I have two responses to that. One, I think do, do look for the ecotherapy and forest therapy. Mm -hmm. um, check out those. There might be some in your area. That could be a good place to start. Often they're free. Like um, at my university, they have them at the nature preserve. You can just go for an hour. And that might give you some ideas you can just take into your own life. There's stuff online. Um, for And again, those are like often just a meditation or it can be just lie on the earth <laughs> And, you know, feel the earth, the earth's solidity, you know, or do, you know, or do something, you know, feel your own heartbeat and how it, it echoes in the earth. I mean, they're very, very simple exercises. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, ecotherapy, forest therapy, there are a lot of books out there, but so that's one thing is, is fine. Just, just searching for something that might resonate with you. I don't have a particular favorite, but I also think just use your own, trust your own instincts. If something simple that you just came up with, like, you know, it doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't have to be, it could be, you know, lighting a candle for the solstice and the equinox or something, you know, that you just felt was right for you to, to honor the cycle of the seasons, mm -hmm. or it's something you wanted to do that gives gratitude for the food that you have on your table. So yeah. I don't think there's a formula that you have to follow. I think you can trust your own, um, creativity if you if you want or you can look online and, and find some suggestions yeah that's good and is there is there any specific advice that you would give to someone who's maybe either an act someone who's an aspiring activist or somebody who um, wants to feel a greater connection to a particular cause yeah I think that's a good example um, I mean that's a good question and the example that I'm thinking of is like Greta Thunberg, um, who, you know, she was just a, a, a student who came out and sat in front of the Swedish parliament. She just started by herself 
with a with a sign school strike for climate change. It's like, I'm not going to school today because you should bring attention. And she just sat there, right? And then a few people joined her and then a few more people joined her. It was a very simple action, but it created that ritual space. Um, yeah. is there, so is there something in your own community where you could do, and it didn't risk arrest. I mean, a simple action that that might bring public awareness to an issue. It could be carrying a sign. You don't even have to say anything if you don't want to write it on a sign, go sit there, um, see what happens. Um, so I think Greta Thunberg is a good model for that of just, a, you know, an, I don't want to say ordinary, but just, a, you know, a student that hadn't been, you know, she hadn't been involved with actions before, but she just was fed up. It's yeah. like, why isn't anyone taking climate change seriously? So that's one example I have. Um, I think acts of identification are really important. So that could be going to a protest and, and really wearing something, or it doesn't have to be a big costume, something that identifies you with some other species. Maybe it's endangered polar bears, or maybe it's the koalas that died in the, in the Australian fire, whatever it might be, that identifying with, or maybe it's a redwood tree, identifying with other species um, in some kind of public way. And again, it can have that kind of cringe, embarrassing factor, but but people often find that it it's still really meaningful. Um, so again, it doesn't have yeah. to be a full costume. It could be something very simple if you're going to um, a, a protest against climate change or about climate change, for yeah. example. Yeah, I really, I like that because it feels very accessible and mm -hmm. it feels very approachable if you're if you're just an everyday person who maybe hasn't started doing this stuff or isn't heavily involved in it it feels like it's easy to start doing it and it's easy to maintain i guess based on how much how much you commit yourself to but um yeah, exactly but yeah. it should feel accessible because i think you know if you want to get involved with protests there's so many different levels another mm -hmm. one is just bring a small instrument you can just be a support. Yeah. You don't have to be out in front. You can just be, you can have a small drum or a, one of those thumb harps or something to just, you know, voice your support in a way. It, it doesn't yeah. have to be a big gesture. Mm -hmm. um, so we're coming to the end of our discussion. So I was wondering if you would be okay with us moving on to the quick fire questions that I- Oh yeah, those, those are real, those are, those could be fun, sure. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm open to suggestions, by the way, if you can think of any that you think would be like good for the future. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the first one is, if you live to be 200, what's one thing you would do differently? That one was so easy. I would spend <laughs> more time outdoors <laughs> in the company of plants and animals and less time in front of a computer. <laughs> um, the next one is, what is one misconception about your field or area of expertise that you would like to debunk? that radical environmentalists are extremists or terrorists and that they're unbalanced. In fact, I found them to be extremely rational, thoughtful and articulate people. Mm -hmm. um, what's the worst advice you've been given? <laughs> That's a hard one, but I think it's that I was encouraged to study more socially acceptable topics rather than paganism and radical environmentalism. What seem to be fringe topics, but I actually think really important issues and actions are raised at the fringes of society. So, yeah. Yeah. Is it a, is it a very under-researched um, area? Is there like a lot of potential for growth if there's people who want to go into that area? I think there's definitely potential for more research. There's, I mean, when I started out, there hardly anyone was writing about paganism. Now more, a lot more people are. Um, in terms of the activists and environmentalists, there's still not a lot of um, research and writing out there. I think there's definitely room for, for more um, exploring more what the, you know, what those people are up to. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the most underrated spiritual teaching you have come across? I think it's that plants and non-human animals have value and deserve care and respect. So most of the world's religious traditions and especially indigenous traditions have such teachings, but very few of us practice them. Yeah. Um, and the last one is Claire Booth Luce once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence? 
Be curious about the world around you and ask questions about everything and everyone you see and hear. I love that. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm going to go and think about some rituals I can implement myself. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you, Sophia. I really enjoyed talking to you and really great um, and interesting questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed that discussion. And if you're interested in reaching out to Dr. Pike and checking out some more of her work, please do take a look at the show notes. There you will also find a link to the Green Also Green website and Instagram page. And if you would like to stay updated on the Sustainable Spirit podcast, you can also make sure to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to the email newsletter, which is released once a month and will not clutter your inbox. If you want to otherwise support this podcast, please leave a review and share it with a friend, a stranger, an acquaintance, or an enemy. It's still a baby podcast taking its first steps, so every single one of you out there listening, downloading, sharing, and spreading the word are making a difference and setting the trend. So thank you. I'm grateful. That said, I can't wait to see you next episode. Until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart.